We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Black Baseball, Black Business, Race Enterprise and the Fate of the Segregated Dollar, the publisher, University Press of Mississippi, the authors, Roberta Newman and Joel Nathan Rosen. Please join me as we welcome Joel Nathan Rosen and welcome home, Roberta Newman, to the clubhouse. And before we get going, just a little surprise. Uh, Joel and Roberta actually don't know about this, but Joel brought this up briefly without understanding that this was going to happen. Um, as, uh, the book, they dedicated the book to Monty Irvin. Uh, Monty Irvin wrote an introductory essay for this book, as most of you probably know, but for those who may not, Monty Irvin was a great Negro League player, great Major League player, a Hall of Famer, as far as what he did on the field. Uh, they obviously knew Monty in a different way. Um, we sent out our newsletter to uh, everyone who gets it on our list. By the way, if anyone wants to sign up who's not signed up, please sign up later. Uh, Steve Rothschild, who's the co-president of the New York Giants Preservation Society, we host their ev events four times a year, at least part of the group, others who are here. Steve uh, forwarded the email to somebody. And I just want to read that email, uh, the response that he got in a second. But first, I just want to read one sentence from uh, Joel and Roberta's book. In the acknowledgments, in gratitude, they wrote, first, we express our heartfelt appreciation to Monty Irvin, who addressed all of our questions with a smile on his face. Uh, Monty Irvin passed away last month at the age of 96. When we set this event up for today, we set it up because this was a date that worked for everybody. Uh, call it whatever you want. Today would have been Monty Irvin's 97th birthday. So Steve Rothschild sent our newsletter to someone that he knew, and she wrote him back. Dear Steve, thanks for sharing. Joel and my dad had a mutual admiration and respect for one another and were great friends who appreciated good jazz. All the best, Pat, Monty's daughter. Uh, so before we get into your fabulous book, you want to speak a little about Monty Irvin. Wow, that's, that's, that's really touch. I heard from Pat last night, actually. She wished us good luck for today. You know, it's funny, Monty and I never talked baseball. He, he was amazed that somebody my age knew so much about the music of his, of his life. And I was amazed that every time he started talking, it sounded like the beginning of a joke. You know, Joe Lewis and Ben Webster and I were having lunch one evening, and it's somewhere, and it's like, okay, Monty, you going to finish the story, or should I just leave at this point now. Um, wow, he was, he was remarkable. And the thing is, he never, he never stopped being the guy that everyone thinks he is. I mean, even, he became, he became larger than his reputation. And in, in many ways, he was actually, very few things are as advertised. And he, I think he and the Grand Canyon are the only two things that I've ever seen in my time that were as advertised. You know? Yogi Berra. Yogi, yeah. Actually, actually, I was, um, we, 
we had something, he was signing books at Montclair, and he turned to me and says, you think Yogi will be here? I don't know about it. I mean, he was sitting there, and, and your friend um, who curates. The, yeah, Dave Kaplan. Right, Dave says, yeah, I think Yogi's going to come. And Monty was so excited, and he was so animated. And then Yogi walks in the door, and Monty looks at him and says, hey, Yogi. And Yogi goes, hey, Monty. And that was the extent of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, we waited about an hour for that exchange. You know. Yeah. The, uh, okay, so now we're going to get into the book, and I, I want to read one line, which is going to uh, give us the, um, the setup, and then we're going to move away from that line. But the sentence that they wrote in the book is, what happened economically in black America when the stars of the segregated sport were lured to the white game? We're going to get to that answer, but I would like uh, Roberta and Joel to start with the foundation so we understand that answer when we do get to it. So if you could just kind of give us the foundation, whether it's the Great Migration, the, uh, the beginning of the so-called Negro Leagues at the early time, whatever you'd like to discuss uh, as a foundation. Well, well before the Negro Leagues, the first official Negro League was founded in 1920 at the Paseo YMCA in Kansas City, uh, black baseball was a feature of the urban and also the rural landscape, but black baseball as we think of it, professional black baseball, has a history before, uh, prior to that. Um, it really became an, an urban feature as the result of the Great Migration. Um, we tend to think of the Great Migration, um, which was the migration of African Americans up from the Mississippi Delta to places along the rail lines, to Chicago, well, Kansas City, Chicago, Pittsburgh, New York, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. Not quite geographically correct, but it sort of went like that so that Chicago was the first great center. And with the migration came the sport. And the fact that African Americans were barred from the late 19th century from, from playing uh, major league professional baseball certainly created an opportunity, especially in urban areas, in, in new African American enclaves for uh, the kind of entertainment that everybody else wanted. So as a result of demand, I mean, there was demand, there was supply, and an industry began. And if we think of, of we, ha we tend to be very sentimental and think of baseball as this great institution. I mean, most of us know, or if we don't, we're about to, that the fact that Baseball is exempt from antitrust regulations, Major League Baseball, because it's considered an American institution. But the fact of the matter is that institution has always been a business. And so for the migrants who came up from the Mississippi Delta and founded new communities, it represented a business opportunity um, to fill a niche where there was demand. Yeah. You want to take it? Yeah, and it's and it's really sort of all all across the South and and, and coming north. And this is why we, we we were so amazed by Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh mm -hmm. is really that one place because yeah. you had you had really two Pittsburghs during the during and after mm -hmm. the migration. 
you had old Pittsburgh, and then you had the hill was the hill district, right? right? And so you had you had in Pittsburgh, which doesn't seem to be, to make a lot of sense. Pittsburgh is really where the, where the game revitalizes after the depression, and it's mostly because you have you know you have the existing populations and the new ones, and in both both sides had the same sort of vision. There was a there was a there was money to be made. There was there was there were there was a population that was hungry for the game, and there was also sort of a natural rivalry that, mm -hmm. that comes about. And this is you know sort of the, the come Posey versus the Gus Greenlee side. And, and regardless of, of all the you know the tension between the two men, it, it's it's this very interesting thing that, thing that develops. It's very much a you know, this is this is you know, this is our neighborhood and our team. This is your neighborhood and your team, and you don't really think of, of Pittsburgh as a place for something like this. It's just not big enough. You would think maybe New York or or you know some of the bigger or Chicago for that matter, and that kind of rivalry was 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 really pretty pretty astonishing. But yes, there was th this thing that begins to happen, and, and this goes to what we're saying about sentimentalizing this whole thing is that. So much was happening within within the black world that was almost it was to say it ignored suggests that there were people that were were actively looking or actively trying to stay away from it. There was a whole world developing that the mainstreams in American life simply never saw, and baseball was one of them. You know, and and even long as, as Roberta says, long before the the historic meeting at the Paseo. Um, it was, it was fairly common knowledge amongst amongst those who had sort of the entrepreneurial spirit that if you could find the right circumstances, you could make a lot of money. And this was more than anything else. There was very little talk of baseball at the sale. There was a lot of talk about business, and there was a lot of talk about could we become like Spalding? Could we do what what A. G. Spalding did? Could we become as important as the funeral homes and the insurance companies? Mm -hmm. And then later, what we see with John Johnson and publishing, you know. So there was there was this great there was this great blending of, of the sentimentality that we see in, in, in with baseball life, you know, and how much how important baseball already was in the country, alongside those who like like A. G. Spalding said, you know, there are there is gold in them the hills and they made a very concerted effort to find it but they didn't always do that great a no, job well no. yeah that's another story you know in, intent and and performance are two different things i yes. mean we tend to think of the negro leagues received history has it that the negro leagues were this great vibrant institution and in fact they were but they were always on financially shaky grounds. Uh, teams came, teams went. Finding a way to capitalize um, a team, a league, was always difficult yeah. when there was no real way of securing funding. Yeah. Uh, money, so that it was a vibrant institution in terms of what it did in the community, but in terms of a business enterprise, it was always kind of shaky. And of course, because of the shaky ground on which they lived, they were always looking for you know, these sort of alternative means right. to secure <laughs> financing. You know, and and you know, where, where's the where's the SBA in Harlem? Well, it was mm -hmm. it was the Garveyites, and where was the SBA in Pittsburgh? It was the numbers runners mm -hmm. and and the gangsters. And so, 
you know, in a, in a sense, and, and Lee, of course, has written about Branch Rickey extensively. I mean, Ricky wasn't wrong when he said that Negro League Baseball was filled with, you know, the sort of it was gangster something element. something of a racket. Yeah, yeah, it was something of a racket. It could, they weren't wrong. He wasn't wrong about it. Yeah. It's the extent to which that was, that, that was true is actually a very interesting part of the story. And it oftentimes, it's, it's either overlooked, underplayed, and sometimes, in, in Ricky's case, he sort of overplayed that hand. But in, at a time when money was hard to come by, it was it was quite necessary to find yourself in league with with some pretty unsavory folks. And I, I again, uh, Composey is 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 kind of an interesting guy. I mean, railing against you know the the criminal the criminal element that was Gus Greenlee, where he you know he's very much like the prefect in Casablanca, you know, collecting his winnings while shutting down the uh, shutting down the casino, you know. <laughs> It was uh, was a, a, was Sunny Man was his guy. Yeah, Sunny, uh, Sunny Man Jackson. Yeah, was, who was yes, yeah, shall we say, didn't work and play well with others, you know, and so he's he's railing against the criminal element, you know, while cashing Sunny Man's check, you know. Did you ever get to talk to Lena Horn about his father? No, we never did. We never he was did. Right, Teddy Horn was mm -hmm. right in the middle of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. We we came across his name quite a bit mm -hmm. in the literature, mm -hmm. but and yeah. Strayhorn made at Properly met Ellington at the at the Crawford, at the Crawford Grill. Grill. Yeah. 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 So what what a time. Huh? Yeah. Well, the Cro yeah the Crawford was kind of the crossroads for everything, and you know, that was yeah very much very much. And one of the things we've discovered. I'm sorry if we're just if if we're getting incoherent here because once we get started <laughs> once we get started talking about this, you can't shut us up either fortunately or unfortunately. Right. But. Um, Gus Greenlee. So I don't know if everybody knows who Gus Greenlee was, but Gus Greenlee was one of black baseball's most important entrepreneurs. He was the founder of the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and he was the owner of the Crawford Grill, which was one of the premier nightclubs in Pittsburgh, but also where all the big acts passed through, all the big African-American acts. He was also a music promoter. He had his own um, promotion business, and he was a business partner of Joe Tito, who bought who with his brothers bought Latrobe Brewery um, right before the end of Prohibition because they saw the writing on the wall. So they started as bootleggers, but that was never their intent. Their intent was to cash in and be ready to roll when Prohibition was lifted. So he was actually Gus Greenlee's uh, silent partner. And Gus Greenlee's Pittsburgh, uh, Gus Greenlee came in in the middle of the Depression in a city reeling from the Depression. Um, a city, Pittsburgh began to feel the results of the Depression in 1928, especially black Pittsburgh, well before the stock market crashed. Gus Greenlee came in in 1933 at the height of the Depression when, I've seen the statistics, it's something like 75% of African Americans were unemployed. So if you look at the unemployment figures from the Depression, they're very skewed by the fact that African Americans uh, bore the brunt of it. He came in, he was a, um, a policy racketeer. So if we say he was a gangster, that's kind of a problematic, I, I don't think I would really, uh, gangster isn't the right term, because when we think of gangsters, we think of Al Capone. Yeah. 
Rather, he, wa he ran uh, the policy rackets in a certain part of Pittsburgh. So what were the policy rackets? They were an illegal lottery. They were kind of illegal. They were protected. Um, the right people were paid off. The right political um, connections were made. But the thing about, the po about policy, and policy is the same as the numbers, it's just a different version. In policy, the numbers are chosen from a, a wheel. And in numbers, they're chosen from an agreed source like the New York stock market well, numbers, market right? Numbers. But uh, so what they were were an illegal lottery. Uh, they were very popular in working class America, all of working class America, um, well before the Depression. But they reached the height of popularity during the Depression because they paid off um, at odds of 600 to 1. So you could make a penny bet. You could make bets as low as a penny and get a $6 payoff for that. What's to lose? And they actually funded an entire industry. So when we say that Gus Greenlee was a racketeer, we're not really talking about a criminal in the same kind of terms as an Al Capone or a Dutch Schultz. And Dutch Schultz was involved in this story. <laughs> but he, he was basically a local entrepreneur. He played the same role as, you know, whoever bought a, uh, what was it, a Mega Millions ticket a few weeks ago when it was what? A bit right too much? You were playing the same game yeah. as the numbers. And, and we, we, came to, we came to really appreciate Greenlee after a while. There was there was really nothing in and around Pittsburgh that he didn't have his hand, and mm -hmm. and, and here's a guy who was having to play both sides. He he was he was had a head for business like I don't think anybody really comes close and, 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 and a talent for it. He also had boxers. Mm -hmm. He had he had a, a he had a disc jockey service. He had a mm -hmm. he had a radio station. He was he was he was making recordings. Um, he was he pretty much. He was the quintessential businessman, and 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 really had a lot. He was very he had a very diverse portfolio. When they, when they tell you that you need to diversify, you know he was well ahead of the curve in that regard. And yeah, and and you know there there are accounts, and Monty would say this too. In fact, um, Greenlee was just a he was a fun guy to hang out with. And he was the guy if you go, if you went to the Crawford and he knew you, you weren't buying drinks. Your money was no good. He had to, he had enough sources for money. But he was also at the same time cultivating relationships, you know, and and you could you could see his his mind. Monty said his mind would turn that he, that if if a player came in that he liked, he was going to try to make a play for him. And this this was part of the, the beauty of Pittsburgh was that you could wear a Crawford. There there are stories of guys playing the first half of a doubleheader and changing sides. You know, you play one game as a Crawford, and the next game you you, you know you played as a member of the Grays. You know, and, and this is part of this is part of uh, of Greenlee's brilliance. Posey, I, I kind of look. I I do this too often for a burr's taste, but, but Posey was 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 Don was Don Don well, Explain Leon. who Composey was first. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Composey was the, was the flip side of of, um, of of Greenlee. Posey was Posey was this sort of he he came out of old Pittsburgh. He you know sort of sort of more society. Um, he was he, he put on this sort of you know very very moral posture you know church going kind of thing and he would never 
soil his hands. To him, to him, sport was something sacred and it needed a savior. He sort of looks at himself as the savior of this, this racket-filled um, filled circuit of, of Negro League baseball. And so the, the two of them formed this sort of natural, this natural antipathy for one another. And it, and it was genuine. It wasn't, it wasn't put upon as, 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 as you might think. It was genuine. They would, they would argue with each other in the pages of the press. And, and the, the courier, the, 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 particularly um, uh, Al, Wendell Smith, Smith loved to sort of pit the two against each other. And it was, it was almost as, you know, it was, it was almost part of the thrill of going to, to a Gray Crawford game was to see you know, if, if the guys were even going to, you know, spend any time, you know, jawing at one another. You know, so you have, you know, Posey, this sort of, the sort of, you know, real moral, you know, everything by the book kind of guy, although he's taking, you know, uh, Sonny Jackson's money. Um, and then you had Greenlee, who was as charming as the day is long. You couldn't have found two more opposite characters in that regard. Was Cumberland and, Posey African-American as Gus yeah, they yes. both were. They both were, and, and you know, there are. There, that's one of the. That's one of the things that we that we, we spent a lot of time looking. at. We, we call it Negro League ball and Negro League ownership, but there, there was quite a bit. You didn't have to be, you know, the the, the face of the franchise to, to, um, necessarily, but there was a lot of there was a lot of mixed race ownership going on. Posey was very much was was very much opposed to that, whereas Greenlee. Greenlee just saw opportunities where most people would simply turn up their noses, and and he was really good at parlaying whatever he had into something great, and that's how we end up with Crawford Field. Um, so one of the things we discovered in our research was that um, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, that Joe Tito, who was white, was a silent partner in the Pittsburgh Crawfords, that there was um, white capitalization there. So. Um, the I feel like we're just rambling yeah, on. Yeah. But, um, this is kind of like this is a, some some insight into how we wrote how the book. we wrote the book. <laughs> but, and, and then there'd be the Bull Durham reference, and then we were gone. Yeah. You know, uh, um, it was a a kind of fraught and complicated. You know, my answer to everything in history is it's complicated, and there was a very occasionally fraught and very complicated relationship between black baseball and its organizations and white incursion or white ownership. So initially the first Negro League was the Negro National League. Now um, uh, myth would have it that it was entirely black owned, but in fact the um, August Kansas City Crawfords, one of the great teams, uh, not the Crawfords, Monarchs. the Monarchs. Monarchs. Yeah. We've been talking about the Crawfords. The Monarchs were white-owned. Uh, Wilkinson, their first owner, was white, and I think in 1948, was it? No, it was 30. It was 1930-something. In order to capitalize, uh, um, the um, Monarchs were the first team to play night ball, officially the first professional team to play night ball, and they traveled with lights because night ball made sense during the Depression. You have the only people who can afford to pay admission are people with jobs, and so they're going to be able to come out at night, and night baseball was a great novelty. Um, so um, Wilkinson helped capitalize the light system 
with an investment by T.Y. Baird, who was also white, and they were honorary sort of black Negro League owners. Um, but then you also, and Joe Tito, who helped capitalize the Crawfords. But then you also had white incursion. Um, there was the issue of the booking agents, the, um, the much reviled Nat Strong. Um, it, it's actually his name. We, we actually looked at, we looked at his birth certificate. It's actually his name, much reviled Nat, Nat Strong. <laughs> who, who, the white booking agents who controlled the venues at which Negro League baseball teams played took a significant cut for booking for booking the games. And if you didn't play ball with them, you didn't play ball. Sure. So this was always an issue. And then there were owners who caused issues with their attitudes towards what they saw black baseball as. For example, um, uh, uh, Pollock, who owned the Indianapolis Clowns, <clears throat> was considered by some problematic. Um, there's a good reason for that. Um, and um, Abe Saperstein, who's best known for um, being oh. the founder of the Harlem Globetrotters, was also involved with black baseball. And he was, he was considered problematic at various times. But their reputation shifted as, their, as time went on. Also, Ed Gottlieb, who, I mean, the NBA now considers Ed Gottlieb one of its founding fathers. One of their major awards is the Ed Gottlieb Award. What is that, the Rookie of the Year? It's, yeah, uh, it's the Ed Gottlieb Award. Yeah. But Ed Gottlieb was both a Negro League owner and promoter. And um, on one hand, he was selling black baseball to African Americans and profiting heavily from it. And on the other hand, he was very deliberately keeping his own bas professional basketball team segregated because he said, well, he didn't think that people wanted to see black people and white people playing together. So there, there was sort of a fraught relationship with um, white money. But what I want to make clear here, what we'd like to make clear here, is the white money they were dealing with was not the mainstream, These, uh, except perhaps Gottlieb. Um, the white booking agents were themselves marginal. They were sort of middlemen, and they weren't welcome in the mainstream either. They were, they were, the, you know, they were the merchants of Venice, for want of a better term, and both both, they were reviled on both sides, but they were absolutely necessary to keep the business going. Yeah, the image, the image I have of this is, it, you, you, you think of somebody like Calvin Griffith, who owned the Washington Senators, later Minnesota Twins, and he was, he, he was the Groucho Marx of baseball to me. Whatever it was, he was against it. And, and so, but he also knew that he had, you know, he needed to rent the stadium out, and he, was, he would never deign to approach a black owner about this, so he would go with the Jew instead. And that mm -hmm. was sort of, and, and so it's almost like this weird game of post office that goes on. You know, pass it on, I have some space, you want to rent it. You know, and, and it would be Saperstein or, you know, any of the, any, golly, whoever was, was promoting would then go and approach um, Negro League ownership and they'd figure out. In fact, toward the end, the Grays basically lived out of, of Griffin mm -hmm. Field. They were, mm -hmm. they were, you know, 
they, they shared time with the senator? Well, mm-hmm. the senator's gone already. Yeah, the timeline's a little shaky in my head. But yeah, so there was so what happens with the middlemen is they become, yeah, they become they get it from both sides. But it, in a sense, neither side would sur- would have survived without them. It's this very bizarre symbiotic relationship that goes on. You know, everybody hates everybody else, but they find a way to do business somehow. You know, um, and and. It, it's just such a, it's such a strange world, and, and in, a, in a sense, this is where we come up with the idea in the first place. Is that it, it's right around the time that that you know everyone's celebrating Jackie Robinson's 50th anniversary of, of coming up, and I'm hearing yet another round of oh, this was such an easy, simple, logical progression for you know America to make this shift, and I'm going, yeah, but it basically wiped out you know a significant portion of the economy just over a period of two years, half the franchise is folded. And not only that, we see the, you know, the, the start of real blight within traditional you know, African-American communities that had been vibrant. Um, and you know, sort of ending up in the 60s with that, that you know, sort of infamous interview that Sammy Davis gives you know, when he's asked why he's not staying at the Teresa anymore. He says, because I don't have to. No, that was 1952. Okay, so yeah, yeah so but the case, the case mm-hmm. being that that you know for the first time, as 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 there's sort of desegregation within the dollar, this becomes very this becomes a very challenging moment, and particularly with somebody um, like Monarch's ownership, which was as we said before was white. You know, how do you stand? How do you how do you step in and say, wait a minute, you can't start, you can't sample from my from my labor force without compensation when essentially what you were doing was standing in the way of progress. And so all this time it, we came together on this issue because we've been, we're trying to figure out how this became easy, how people just sort of overlooked the fact that, that these were businesses and not something to sentimentalize. And this, is, this is, was sort of the, the, the platform by which, you know, we, the sort of jumping off point for which we started writing the book in the first place. This idea, this this was always going to be difficult. Well, I have plenty of other questions, but we do have an extremely intelligent, uh, knowledgeable crowd, so I want to make sure we have questions from from the audience. So, if you could just, because we have so many people here, just please keep it to a, a quick question. Yes. Thank you. I really thought this was a great talk and a lot of anecdotes, and I'm glad we recognize Monty Irwin's birthday. My question is this: Your book seems to tell a very interesting story about how. You know, after Jackie Robinson, what happens to the Negro Leagues, why that's important for the broader kind of economics of, of urban America. But there's another there's another side of this too, which is there's the story of the growing, the expanding hegemony of Major League Baseball, right? So I'm wondering, looking at that, what what based on your research, based on just your thoughts, what does this tell us about the future of, for example, baseball in Japan, where in a very different economic context, there's an interesting dynamic that's not wildly unrelated to this going on, or even baseball in other Asian countries. It's an apt comparison. Yeah, I think it's a very apt comparison. Um, The difference, I would say, is that baseball in Japan is part of the mainstream. Um, It wasn't forced into existence by an essentially unequal social, political, economic policy. So the difference would be that um, it is part of the mainstream. And the fact of the matter is the teams in Japan are owned by major corporations. 
and it may have the same effect um, on the quality of baseball there. Because let's be clear about this. Post, I mean, we hear a lot about um, how the Negro Leagues might have been as great as the major leagues. And that was certainly true before desegregation. But the level of play after the Negro Leagues were decimated really was not as good. It was great for people in small towns who got to see baseball. See, that's the point. Uh, black baseball became a barnstorming outfit, and this became um, an educational, an educational, an uh, entertainment outlet for people who wouldn't other, otherwise be able to see the sport. But the thing is, in Japan, um, there's a well-structured, well-heeled organization behind it, and I think the difference is that Japan may eventually, and I don't know the business structure that much, they may actually reconfigure and create some connection um, with the major league, something that Negro League owners were unable to do, although some of them thought it was a good idea. Well, and this is, yeah, and what I see happening, and again, I'm in the same boat. I don't boat. know if that's an adequate answer. Yeah, I'm in the same yeah. boat, but I think what, what, what's going to happen here, and this is, was sort of the, this was the, really the, the, last, the last step of, of Negro League ball. Too many of the owners really believe that they could have been a third major league, and they stopped they, they never really considered their role as development, as talent development. And I can see, I can see in, in Japan, yeah, I can see what, I can see the Japanese leagues taking on this. Well, now that our guys have broken through and they're starting to become part of, of the fabric of Major League Ball, then our role is to sort of move with the times and move toward that. Because you can't keep them, you can't keep talent if it, if, there's other, there's other options. Options become sort of like the, the floating word that, that we found here. Once players had options and once consumers had options, well, this, this is how we get to our subtitle. This is the fate of the segregated dollar. And one of the things we come to find, and this is where the work of, um, of people like, uh, like Franklin Frazier was, was very important for us, because he sort of presages this. There, there were a, a number of scholars who started look at, looking at the economic landscape and saying, you know, there are just a handful of people who have a real stake in segregation and, and in, in, in the black community, and this is problematic. And some of the owners really seemed to think that, that segregation was going to last forever. And I think what's happening, what we see happening in Japan is that they, they seem to be heading toward the reality that if we continue to develop, to develop talent, we can continue to have our circuits and play our games at home, knowing that our stars are probably going to become part of the major league apparatus. And they're compensated for it. Mm. The yeah. Posting fee. Yes. That's right. What would Monty Irvin's posting fee been? <laughs> Quite a uh, bit. It's, it's interesting, though, because his owner, Ethel Manley, um, insisted on being paid. She of uh, she was really um, a voice for saying that uh, she was a business person. She was a developer of talent. Unfortunately, she got paid. Her talent didn't get paid. In the case of 
um, Sid Pollock, who owned the Indianapolis Clowns, um, he actually negotiated for his players, Hank Aaron most specifically, who never who didn't actually play very much for the Clowns, but um, Pollock actually negotiated his deal um, with the Braves and made sure that Aaron actually saw a significant piece of that bonus that he was paid. So, I mean, it, it's like the, but the Japanese um, players don't get a piece of the posting fee either. It, it goes to the teams. And the PCL players do. I mean, the PCL no. aren't signing somebody else. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that is sort of the, the, the continuing thread, right? That at the end of the day, they're ball players, they're laborers, and they're going to get screwed one way or the other. You know, let's just hope, let's hope, you know, the next generation has some developmental leagues so we'll fall back. Do we, do we yeah. choose or? Yeah, you go ahead. I'm choosing uh, over your head. Okay. <laughs> they're back there, yeah. I'm sorry, can you speak up just a little bit, please? I, uh, I was going to ask, why do you think that the percentage of African Americans in baseball is at its lowest point since integration? We should call Dave on this one. <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, we have to look at how we define black. And I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going to move away from the term African-American here for a second because I think we have to look back. We now have a tendency to say, oh, well, African-Americans and consider Latinos as different. But Afro-Latinos like uh, Orestes Minoso and Roberto Clemente, etc., would not have... David Ortiz would not have been able to play in the major leagues prior to desegregation. They were black. And it used to be one group. Now, light-skinned Latinos could play, but it was a question of skin color. Yeah. So if you look at the major leagues right now, there still are a significant number of players of color and a growing number of players of color. The problem with African-American um, participation is an economic one. At this point in the United States, in order to rise to the elite level of baseball, you have to participate in the select, the select system, right. right? Select leagues, it goes beyond, you don't have to, but the, the way most American players find their way into becoming elite high school players to college players, and, and I, I would say Lee knows more about college players than, but it's through these select leagues, through a system which requires um, a great deal of resources, so I wouldn't say it's just African-American players, I would say that it's, and, and there are certainly plenty of African-Americans who are not disadvantaged. I would argue that disadvantaged players in general don't have the resources to participate. It, so that there has to be a program for you to play in, to become a player. Now groups like RBI are trying to do their best and like the Compton the Baseball. The Youth Academy is yeah. celebrating its 10th year. Right. And um, their highest draft pick ever was the first overall, or fourth pick last year, Dylan Tate from UCSB, mm -hmm. and he's a black pitcher. But, right? but, but think about that line in, in, yeah. in the Burns series, right? When he says, look at, the, look at Honus Wagner's face. Mm -hmm. 
you know, this is a guy who's, if he's not playing ball, he's in a coal mine. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and the thing is, Wagner would never have been able to afford one of the select programs. He, he, finding him would have been, you, you would have mm -hmm. to stumble over him. And I think, just to Mickey go Mantle back to your question, too. Mantle too. And I, going back to your question, options. You know, baseball at, at the time was, was the all-encompassing sport. Where is baseball, um, uh, you know, amongst millennials now? Right. right, and, and so you you have, well, yeah, you have you have more and more options. It's not that baseball's. I, see, I I I'm I'm with Roberta on this. I mean, the numbers are staggering if you just account for American-born, but I think when you look when you look at the landscape, there are economic issues, there are cultural issues, but there's certain. The fact is, baseball doesn't play well to an ESPN raised audience and that's part of the problem baseball is just not sexy you know and and to a fantasy right. to a fantasy audience it's it's not sexy I mean I I still prefer the guys who hit behind the runners and the 1-0 pitching duels and yeah. that doesn't play well in ESPN you know it, it just doesn't work and so it, it's it's harder and harder to convince somebody that that's that's a way to go plus plus you know I, I I give my student, uh, my student baseball players a hard time all the time. They say, oh, I'm on the baseball team. I say, yeah, you play a game that looks like baseball, but as long as you lose an aluminum bat, it's really not baseball, uh, you know? <laughs> it's baseball-esque. It's wood. Right. All wood? Oh, yeah. Oh. Um, I was curious what your take was. Um, the 1945 press screening for the United States League and I was always curious, did, was that really legitimate? And it, did it inadvertently become the Trojan horse for Branch Rickey to scout without getting too much attention and then swoop in and cherry pick who he wanted? And what was the motivation for Greenlee to suddenly come out with that? Well, Greenlee was blackballed by the other owners. I mean, he was he was virtually invisible by this time. He's he's relying on a stable of boxers, but he's not even in baseball. So Greenlee wanted back in, you know. So so that was his motivation. I I think, I, and this is something Lee can answer probably well, better than and, we can. And, you know, twenty years after Ricky mm -hmm. was interviewed by Charles Dexter for the Jackie Robinson book, uh, baseball has done it, and you know Ricky uh, in his. Greenlee was in on it in 44 and th this is why we keep going back to Gus Greenlee yeah. because Gus Greenlee of all the former owners saw the writing on the wall understood what was going to happen 
we thought, we think that he was forming that league with the idea that he would somehow affiliate it and turn it into a minor league. He saw it as a way to funnel talent. Um, that it was somehow inevitable at that point that the majors were going to desegregate and that this would be the showcase league which would desegregate. And so he and Ricky were made for each other. And, and he, yeah, and, and Ricky was his in as well. And, and right, and so, and this is, again, goes back to Greenlee as, as this visionary. You know, he, in a, in a sense, he jumped ship right at, at exactly the right time. And he was poised to, you know, to, to make good. You know, he was, you know, the best you can do in, in, a, in a situation like that is, is to put yourself in a good position, and that's what he seemed to be doing. Whereas everybody else was really sort of scuffling and trying to figure out what was next, and 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 that that made him that made him reviled in his own way, you know. That that Greenlee Greenlee was ahead of the curve and behind the eight ball pretty much his entire oh, career. You know, didn't there, he there's die? your quote right there. Yeah, Posey died in forty seven, forty eight. Now now how how much longer did Greenlee live? I think of the 60s? Um, no, was late he died late 50s, shortly yeah, thereafter. After. Yeah. Cause, cause C. Posey, Seward Posey takes over um, the, Posey in, the Posey businesses, but yeah, the Crawfords were long dead. I think yeah. at, that, at that point, Greenlee had pretty much divested yeah. himself. Everything he, he but boxers, right boxers and radio stations, I think it was, it was his last legacy. You know, what a great place, Pittsburgh for radio, what a great place to be there in a radio guy. Yeah, uh, Tim, and back. So interested to hear about this sort of regrouping and reorganizing in 44, 45, because I wonder to what extent the Negro League team owners saw the writing on the wall as World War II was ending, because it seems that uh, a large number of their fan base had jobs in the war industries that they were going to lose when the war ended and white soldiers returned from the war. Um, this, they must have known this was going to have a huge impact on their business. Um, in, in, in anticipation of that. Well, 40s, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, you know, there, we, we came across so much material that had, that, that just looked like they saw the needle rising. They saw, they saw the soldiers coming back from the Pacific Theater particularly, um, you know, and they saw, you know, equal rights and they saw opportunity and that everything was just going to be fine but everybody was going to stay home you know greenlee of course jumped ship because he saw that that was that was a silly notion that that he could that he saw that and in fact you have bill veck you know we we we, we seem to overlook veck in all this we everybody talks about ricky and everybody talks about horace Stoneman, but veck was trying to veck was trying to you know trying to uh you know do away with with the gentleman's agreement long before that. Um, Ricky has Ricky has great cover with the Ives Quinn Act. You know, it sort of has to. You know, that that was that was that was his umbrella. But but you know, for the most part, everything that we see, it looks like for the most part, owners were pretty much convinced that that the post-war, the anything post-war was going to be a boon to their finances. There was very little thinking that we were in big trouble. They just. And they kept looking to the to the to the uh, the, uh, the East West game as the barometer, 
And of course, by forty-eight, we you know we start to see that the game itself, that right there, they were right. The, the East-West game was the barometer. They never saw, they never, it never dawned on them that the the White Sox were going to draw for a weekend for a weekday series with Cleveland better than than the East-West game did. And that was then you can start to see the, the writing on the wall. They for them the writing on the wall was. You know, everything was looking up. Everything was looking good. They very much convinced themselves that you know they were gonna that there was no storm to weather. That it was onward and upward. The Negro American League had its best year in 1947. Its best year. It did very well in 1948 as well, because people were coming out to see the future stars. The fans understood what perhaps the owners didn't that their guys were one step away. Obviously not all of their guys, but the potential of their guys being one step away. And it went from this to this. And if you look at some of the numbers, say from like 19, by 1952, the situation was dire. It was truly dire. Some of the things that went on in 1952 to keep the Negro American League afloat were borderline ridiculous. Right. Okay. So I am saying this as a feminist who thinks that women should be playing baseball, not just softball. So let me just put myself in that position. The signing of Tony Stone, for those of you who don't know, the Indianapolis Clowns, desperate to bring in money. The Indianapolis Clowns, who had been kept out of the league because they were considered a minstrel show, were admitted to the league in 46? Six, I think yeah. it is, yeah. Um, and by the early 50s, the Indianapolis Clowns were keeping the, the remaining Negro American League afloat financially. And they were doing so by bringing in novelty acts. So they, so Tony Stone was a um, woman who came into play with them. So they had the first woman in professional baseball. And, and you had this, and you had the sense mm -hmm. that she was a tie-in to uh, Tony Product, Tony um, Products. This is what it's it's because her name it, wasn't Tony. It's up to this is up to debate. Okay, this is one of these things that's up to debate. Sid Pollock, who owned the clown, said he named her Tony after Tony Home Permanents, which were popular. But a recent biography of her said no, she called herself Tony. So it's unclear. Nevertheless, uh, she was used as, and, and she was, she could play. She was not a great player, but she could play. And she was used as a way to bring fans in. Um, and she did. And in fact, um, the next year she was traded to the Monarchs where she played. Um, uh, Oscar Charleston managed the Monarchs. He was considered, he was, he was perhaps, and I, I can't say who the greatest player was, but he was one of the greatest players. Yeah, the black tie cob. And he was brought in and in 54 almost as a publicity stunt. To he wasn't thrilled about managing a woman because even though he was brought in as a publicity stunt, 
He didn't take it that way. He took it seriously. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I think it's also interesting, too, is that um, Tony Stone was brought to the team because they suddenly had an opening at second base when Hank Aaron was mm -hmm. gone. So, you know, the answer to the question, who replaced Hank Aaron in the Negro Leagues, you know, is, you know, and, and another thing that we found out, I mean, this was after the fact, but the Braves really weren't in on Hank Aaron. The who was in on Hank Aaron was Stoneman. He was right, going to be a giant. giant. Yeah. I want you to think about this a minute. Yeah. He was an eyelash away from having an outfield of Aaron, Mays, and Irvin. You know, and those giant teams went from pretty good to really great. And they, at the last minute, um, Pollock, Pollock started a bidding war with the right. Braves. And, and, and got more money yeah. for Aaron, for the league and for Aaron. So Pollock kept the league afloat for a while. Yeah. Hi. Parallel to the beginnings of the Negro Leagues were the anti-lynching laws in mm -hmm. the yeah. And it never really got passed until the 30s when they ended up with so the whole period of time when this is developing, what influence, political at all, any attitudes by these owners, white, black, whatever, in these black communities building businesses, could they say about this? Could they have any influence, any attitude? What did you learn? Well, um, most they were uh, very activists. A number of owners were very activists. And I would point out most particularly Effa Manley. Um, who is the only woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame. She was the owner with her husband of the Brooklyn and then the Newark Eagles. And before she got into baseball, she was a social activist. She was one of the founders in the 30s of the Harlem uh, Housewives, even before that, the, ha the Harlem Housewives League with A. Philip Randolph's wife. Um, Seal, right? Yeah. Seal, okay. Um, they were the founders, and they were the uh, the Harlem Housewives League was the motivating force between behind New York's version of the "Don't Buy Where You Can't Work" campaign, and the primary kind of flagship big-time retailer on 125th Street is Bloomstein's Department Store, and Bloomstein's Department Store which was a high-end department store and had an odd business relationship with the Amsterdam News. Um, so, like always, it's complicated. Um, with the Amsterdam News, did not hire African-Americans in any um, public, um, job. So they hired black janitors, but not African-American saleswomen, for example, or elevator operators. Um, and we think, well, elevator operators, but that's, that's a good paying job in the 1930s that someone in the community would have liked to have had. And so you're talking about a clientele that's almost exclusively African-American, though I know that my mother used to shop there. So it was mo almost exclusively African-American and my mother. Okay. Um, but Effa Manley led, um, was one of the leaders of the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work campaign. And she actually went in and brokered a deal with Mrs. Blumstein, um, who said to her husband, this is losing us money. Let me sit down. And the two women sat together, brokered a deal that that desegregated Blumstein's workforce. 
Now, of course, it would be a nice let's hold hands and sing kumbaya story, but Blumstein's only hired extremely light-skinned women to work as sales clerks. Uh, elevator operators did better, and eh, it didn't last that long. But um, this is an example of an owner who was socially active and remains socially active. And I would say that for the most part, the owners, the African-American owners, many of them were, because there were white owners of other teams, were social activists. They, there was, just to, to put a cap on that though, there, there was a stake, there, they had a stake though in not being too active. I mean, Effa Manley could, she was a known, she was a known quantity before she, she and her husband took over the Eagles, but um, for the most part, they had to be mindful of the fact that too much agitating would have cost them money in the long run. And so there, there was there was a, a there was a sense that you know you could go up to the waterline, but you couldn't really dip your toes, you know, too often and too too vociferously. Sir, but with the Bluestein uh, department store, uh, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the congressman at the mm -hmm. time, had a very big strike, and Bluestein and uh, Powell then agreed, and they started the first. Mm -hmm. Yep, and Manley was involved in that deal. There were actually black mannequins too that I think came out of that, that, that deal right. as well. Yeah. And you start to see the ads in the Amsterdam news change and all of a sudden um, the pictures are no longer white models wearing the clothing. R remember, they didn't use photographs, they used illustrations, but all of a sudden the pictures in the illustration were people of color. What year? What year? Um, the first black Santa Claus, that was it in... It to be, Adam Clayton Powell was elected in, he was in Congress for until the 1970s, mm -hmm. so he served 26 years, so it goes back to 1944. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, the, but the deal that, that Effa Manley brokered with Mrs. Blumstein was back in 1935 before, but after that, Blumstein started to understand that he had to, he was a businessman, and he started to understand that if he didn't change um, his policies, his marketing policies, that he wasn't going to have customers because those customers, and this is part of the story, those customers started feeling, well, first of all, those those customers could always go down, go downtown and shop at Macy's or Gimbel's or Abraham and Strauss in Brooklyn. But more and more, those customers were more than willing to take their business elsewhere. So that they had to do that, that this was the response. Talk about complicated. There, some people have written that Effa Manley was white trying to pass as black. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, we, it's unclear. Um, it's unclear. Uh, uh, James Overmeyer, who's um, Effa Manley's um, biographer, um, and helped us quite a bit with with this project, um, is it says that it's unclear. If you look at photographs of Effa Manley, she's clearly not traditionally Caucasian. Um, she was probably at least part Cherokee, 
um, she was her her mother was white and her father was African American. Um, she was the lightest skinned. Um, she was raised as African American. She had a black right. stepfather, right? She had a oh, father or a father. Uh, yeah. That's um, it's unclear. And later in life, she claimed that, oh, my mother had an affair and I'm really white and I've been black all this. She was the, she claimed that she was the Rachel Dolezal, we all remember, <laughs> of, basically of her time that she was passing as black. But in fact, but in fact, if you look at photographs of her, she looks like she was a person of color and she was a, a society um star she, yeah, she, she was a fashion plate yeah, yeah. she was one of harlem's leading lights even though her team was in new jersey about five years ago the wonderful um, headstone collector mm -hmm. of these inspired yeah. fans came out and they were tracking down other well-known negro mm -hmm. leaders or, or not i'm sure you're familiar with that and, um, but death that never sat right with me because it was a couple months prior to integration Josh Gibson. Mm. He died at 36. Yeah. I'm a couple months shy of my 36th birthday, and I was always very curious as to this man was so well beloved in Pittsburgh and in Washington. He made a lot of money for these two ownership mm -hmm. groups we just talked about, and he died relatively young as to when his star was still very recognizable. How did he pass away so destitute and then get buried without a headstone? As from what I understand, at, at 36 years old, a couple months before Jackie Robinson. Uh, yeah. Um, well, Black I thought he, Babe Ruth. Yeah. How did it happen? I thought he, but he was sick though. I mean, yeah. There yeah. was there was a lot of indication. People, the, the mythology. This is see. This is where we we were trying to disengage the mythology. Right. And part of the mythology of Josh Gibson was he drank himself into an early grave. That's a very <laughs> convenient story. But actually, it's I think he had an aneurysm or a, a brain Heart, tumor. His yeah. his behavior became very erratic in the end. Yeah. So it, it's it's. And I know that the HBO HBO made a, a movie, um, and they yeah. sold the game, right? And and they sort of depict him as not being so much an alcoholic like the mythology that he was that he was actually sick. Um, I think I think it's fairly to me. I think it's fairly cut and dry that he really was sick. I mean, he's destitute because probably he's having a hard time keeping it together. He could have made a great deal of money, but the fact of the matter is, the major leagues didn't want. Established stars. They, the the idea of taking somebody of that stat, stature and trying to trying to mold them into you know major league quality you know uh, comportment and all that it just didn't it didn't seem to be in the cards for either either uh, uh, Satchel Page or Josh Gibson. Except that it was in the cards for Satchel. Well, for Page. Satchel Page, right? Because yeah. he was he, he was. You know, Gibson was, for all his greatness, he, he didn't have a tenth of Satchel Paige's moxie. Mm -hmm. You know, Paige could talk himself in, in pretty much anywhere, and he does. And, of course, this is where Saperstein gets really interesting. Saperstein go, goes from sort of the white sheep of the family, you know, outs, you know really sort of on oh, the outs with was everybody. Hated. And the minute, the minute Vec decides it's, it's his time, you know who does he who does he go to? He goes to Saperstein, and and then you then you look at who the general manager in Cleveland was Hank Greenberg. Right. I mean they had they had everything they needed when they got when they put Saperstein on the payroll because Saperstein knew every he could be in everybody's ear. He knew exactly who the right choices were. He 
he helped him with he helped him with the Dobie situation, and from there Cleveland just sort of took off. And Cleveland's heyday in the '50s corresponds with their decision, you know, to 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 to, to go after black talent like that. Um, so I, I don't I don't think Gibson would have been attractive to most major league owners, you know, um, mostly because his behavior was erratic, and we now we now know why. But it didn't matter to them if he could hit a ton. If he was going, if he was going to get the team in, in, into trouble, then he wasn't worth the money, you know. And and the thing about Page is that he was a promotional genius. Satchel Page understood that he was his own greatest product. He marketed himself in a way that no other star at that point marketed themselves. He, he was an example of marketing much, uh, much on the same level in a way as Babe Ruth who had representation, who didn't do it himself, who had Christy Walsh doing it for him. Um, Satchel Paige was popular not just with African American fans but with white fans. He, he was covered across the press he would do things like play two innings with one team, hop in a car, and then play two innings in another city. city. Yeah. And he had a driver, right? Right. Right. He would he would rent himself out. He had with whatever team he was playing with, he had deals with the owners. He would rent himself out to to all these different teams so that they could advertise Satchel Page. He played he pitched one inning and he'd do some of his stuff like calling the infielders in. He'd go out and he'd be Satchel Page for one inning. And he was he was a one ball player money making enterprise. And he did it himself. He was not beholden to anyone. And the He's, fact that he was talented just made it even all the better. And he played, he played into the, uh, I have ads from 1965, mm -hmm. come see Satchel Page pitch. Yeah. He was friends with all those guys. He he uh, recognized talent, and he also recognized where to have a good time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he wasn't he wasn't going to turn down a, an opportunity to you know to hang out with some folks who like to like to party the way he yeah. did. Yes. Yeah, so you, we have uh, two, time for two more questions. Uh, yeah. You go ahead. You. Well, I just want to. I read this the other day. I couldn't believe it. I mean, when you see what's going on in the country in the late forties and the fifties. Late as 1957, the Georgia State Legislature passed a law that blacks and whites cannot play together. The Dodgers would come up from Vero Beach. I, I used to be, I was a stadium announcer at Grayson Stadium in Savannah. And every day somebody would come up and tell me another story about how, how awful it was to be, you know, in the bad old days, you know, when it was segregated. And Jackie Robinson would come down with a migraine or the flu. Every time they get to Savannah, he got sick. I mean, you'd think there was something in the water, and it was. It was, you know. Um, but yeah, that was. Uh, and, and, and of course, one of the great head scratchers of all time, 
Um, I get to Savannah just as they're building the Eugene Talmadge Memorial Bridge <laughs> to South Carolina. So it's like some of those things don't die hard, you know. Um, and over at 57, of course, we have Favis in, 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 uh, in, Middle, in, uh, in Arkansas, too. Um, yeah, that was, it, it, made it, it made it challenging for some of those places. But, of course, you know, where, does, where, does, uh, where do Negro League um, franchises really sort of thrive in the aftermath? Birmingham and Memphis. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there was there was a great deal of talent. And Willie Mays comes out of the Birmingham. Um, what sixteen when he played in Birmingham? Mm-hmm. And actually, in '68, when segregation once and for all, at least in public places, because I I was down in Birmingham and talking to some of the guys that played down there, and they said the day segregated uh, play became illegal, the uh, black barons and the barons were all buddies, and the minute it became illegal, they were all playing on the same team, which is, it, it, this isn't true of the fans, it's just true of the players. So yes. you would said that um, the Negro Leagues peaked financially around 47, 48. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier in the development, it was sort of propped up by, uh, not criminal enterprise, but sort of border, you know, fringe. Uh, was it still propped up at the, at the peak? And if so, as it started to roll over three, four years later, how ugly was that? Uh, if you have, you know, taking money from kind of borderline uh, criminals, is that, you know, <coughs> did it unwind very badly? See, first of all, you have to explain that, that from the point of view of their communities, they weren't borderline criminals. With they, the exception of, 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 um, of, of uh, the Cubans, the black Cubans. Um, no, oh, Pompez was Pompez. awesome. Yeah. No, right. it was Semler. Semler, Semler right. the New York black Yankees. Yeah. That guy was a piece of work. But, you know, he wasn't a really good criminal. No, no, he wasn't good at making money, and he also wasn't a very good yeah. owner. Semler, Semler was consistent. He was bad at everything he did, you know. But other than that, and, and Sonny Boy in Pittsburgh, but other than that, um... Guys like Greenlee, like Alex Pompez, who was the owner of the New York Cubans. Um, who, had and, a, who had a Dutch Schultz problem. So, right. So Luciano really helps him out of his Dutch Schultz yeah. problem. And um, as well as um, the Manleys. Um, the, the Newark Eagles were capitalized by money from the numbers rackets which was as well. A, which was Abe. Abe, Abe right. was the numbers was, guy. Right. You know, but... This wasn't considered taking money from, these were the owners, these were the entrepreneurs. Think of it this way, they were essentially the savings and loans of their community. They, while they made a lot of money from the rackets, they pumped money back into the community. If you needed to run a business and you needed money, this is where you got it from. And there was really, I don't even want to put a negative spin on it. To call them criminals, to call them gangsters, is to not understand the social structure. Because they, and they weren't involved in violence. And they really were um, simply in their own community. They had a lot of political clout um, in, in Kansas City, um, originally God, I forgot our guy's name back in Kansas City. Wilkinson. What? No, Wilkinson. no, no but it was, was, a, it was, a, was another a, guy. Another, there was another a, numbers guy. Yeah. yeah. Who um, all the politicians um, oh, wait a minute. courted, um, all the white politicians courted him. 
He also had a team, but he they yeah. never did much like the Monarchs. Yeah, it, it's and there was there was one one source that we found was trying to say that these guys were, were actually laundering money in their ball clubs. There wasn't enough money to it launder. launder. <laughs> you know, it, it's like you know, it's like when you haven't been home in a while and you got a couple of socks and you don't know what to do with them. You know, right? You know, you wash them in the sink. There wasn't a lot of money to be laundered. How serious a member of the clan was Baird? Baird it was written that Baird was in the clan. Not from what anything that I saw. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody put it in print. Yeah. yeah, I. Everything I saw about Baird, Baird was the owner of the Monarchs after Wilkinson. Everything I read about Baird, everything I saw about Baird, that we saw about Baird, I went through his papers. Um, his business papers are in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, the black press universally lauded him. And they loved Wilkinson. They loved they Wilkinson. Loved they, loved they loved Baird. They loved Paula, too. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing is, and, and again, we were, we were very careful about this because there are a lot of great books out there, but we wanted to really, we wanted, we knuckled down with, we spent so much time looking at you Michael know, Phil and Michael Fish. It was, it was staggering. Um, and this was, this was part of, part of what we, what we discovered um, was that a lot of, there's a lot of apocrypha out there, you know, and, and, and it gets repeated so many times it becomes fact. And we're going back and we're looking at these things, what, you know, something attributed to this columnist and that columnist and, and, they never said these things, or what they said was in the context of something completely different, and that was the value of, of, of that, of, of the kind of research we did. And we, we actually, we were very fortunate. We had a couple of students who were spending a lot of time, you know, loading up on antihistamines and going through some pretty nasty-looking boxes, you know. As did we. Yeah, as did we. Yeah, there was there was some there was some serious, you know, allergy outbreaks, you know, for a while. But I think that if Baird had been, I I heard those allegations. But I saw nothing. I looked really carefully. He also had really good relationships with, especially in Dallas, with the black radio stations and with Southern um, African-American businesses. And I somehow doubt that Klan membership would have um, served him very well under those. And he was first and foremost a businessman. And... And his players loved him. Yeah. So, th yeah. I mean, I think that's really important. Because of the time factor mm -hmm. on the podcast, we're going to just have to end this part. I'm sure Roberta and Joel will be glad to stay, answer your questions, mm -hmm. talk to you, sign the books. For those listening, again, the name of the book, Black Baseball, Black Business, published by University Press of Mississippi, written beautifully by Roberta Newman and Joel Nathan Rosen. Thank you very much.